All right, good afternoon, everybody. We are going to get started. Uh, I want to welcome you all today. I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you all for coming. Um, this is a Capitol Hill briefing entitled The Three Languages of Politics, Talking Across the Political Divides. Um, this is based on a book by our speaker, Arnold Kling. Uh, it's available online in any numerous formats, but uh, I can help you if you need help with that. Um, but first, if you're watching via our live stream and would like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. So please tweet comments and questions to us at hashtag Cato events. You can do that here too if you want to, so it need not be from the remote folks. Um, and further, this spring, the Cato Institute released the eighth edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. Copies were available on the table as you came in, and if you'd like more of those, please contact me after the program, and I will uh, get those to you. Meanwhile, fully searchable PDFs are available at cato.org too. Um, so this generation has seen what could be described as some of the most intractable divisions in modern times. And why does it seem that we can't seem to come to a consensus on almost anything? Even within parties, we can't seem to get to agreement. But in observing the procession of events defining our current political climate, our speaker today noted how the various parties and factions use the language of politics in very particular ways. And once exposed to how this works, it becomes very difficult to unsee. And you will find yourself filtering news feeds as like, oh, that's the language of progressives. Uh, and that's part of what makes this resulting book uh, so important, that by recognizing the way we communicate, politics contributes greatly to the shaping of narratives and the creation of public policy even. So language, of course, is a tool that can be used to both unite and divide. And looking at precisely how this works makes this uh, a very interesting book and a very interesting presentation. Um, Arnold Kling, who was an economist and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, received his PhD in economics from MIT in 1980. So through the 80s and early 90s, he'd served on the staff of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, then as a senior economist at Freddie Mac. He started one of the first commercial sites on the web and was a pioneer in the medium of blogging, which is a form I think we all take for granted today. Uh, he blogs near daily at arnoldkling.com, and there you will find pithy insights into a wide variety of issues from economics, financial regulation, monetary policy, housing, and much more. Uh, in addition to this, King is also the author of many other books, including Specialization in Trade, A Reintroduction to Economics, and Crisis of Abundance, Rethinking How We Pay for Healthcare. Uh, but today he will talk about his newly revised and updated title, The Three Languages of Politics, and we will leave time for questions at the end or maybe along the way. Uh, but for now, let's please welcome Mr. Arnold Kling. Thank you. I, uh, I don't get along well with podiums. The, the first time I spoke with a podium, it was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And in Minneapolis, everyone is named Sven and is six feet tall. And the podium was built for Sven. And I spent the whole time <laughs> going like this trying to see people. I, I still don't. I, I'd, I'd rather be like this, but um, this is where it is. Um, so how many people here are interns? A uh, fair number. Uh, I was an intern 44 years ago uh, in the office of Senator Hubert Humphrey. I feel I learned a lot. Uh, my political journey has been long and uh, you know, didn't end up anywhere near where I started. Uh, I think the main thing that I noticed as an intern was that the legislative assistants were crowded, 
they used manual typewriters. Um, they had way more work than they could handle. And, you know, just very unpleasant working conditions. And then in a different part of the building, there was the most advanced electronic equipment then available, which was an automatic uh, word processor uh, with an auto pen for signing things. Uh, there was plenty of space to work, and the, uh, and the people working there seemed to be much happier. And that was the, the, the part where they answered uh, constituent service mail. So, you know, you need help with uh, your veterans' benefits or whatever. So that, that was very disillusioning to me because it told me that what was really important to Congress people in getting elected was that kind of constituent service of sort of uh, intervening on the behalf of a constituent with the bureaucracy as opposed to uh, working on policy. So that, that was my experience as an intern. I don't know if your experiences will be as disillusioning or not, but uh, that was mine. Uh, okay, so the Three Languages of Politics presents a model of political communication. Uh, how, how we communicate our political beliefs, it's not a model of how we necessarily form our political beliefs, but how we communicate them communicating them along three axes in order to uh, gain support and raise our status among people who agree with us and uh, to not really engage at all with the people who disagree with us. So these three axes set up three uh, different salient notions of good and evil. So for progressives, the good and evil axis has to do with uh, the oppression of particular classes of people. So if you go all the way back to the uh, biblical times, the uh, oppressor class was the Egyptians led by Yul Brynner and the... Um, and, and the oppressed were the Hebrew slaves, uh, and then God uh, appointed Charlton Heston to lead them out of bondage. Um, so you know, that's the ancient version, the modern version of the oppressor oppressed. The classes of oppressed include minorities, women, LG. Uh, you know, BT. <laughs> I have trouble. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, and, uh, and, and that leaves us the, uh, the oppressor class, uh, the straight white males, I guess. Um, then, so that's, that, that's, so the, the central evil in the progressive narrative is this oppression of particular classes. Uh, for conservatives, the view is that the human nature is by nature barbaric and what keeps out the barbarians are the traditions and institutions that we've built up over centuries. So again, I guess the historical uh, example would be the Roman Empire falling to barbarians and um, you know, that's, that's something that conservatives always worry about. 
uh, is that the, the barbaric nature of humanity is always at the gates, and to keep those gates closed, you have to support the uh, traditional institutions, traditional values, traditional norms. So it's civilization versus barbarism for the conservatives, does what oppressors versus oppressed um, does with progressives. Finally, we have libertarians for whom the dichotomy is liberty versus coercion. So when, uh, I, in when I interact with somebody and we engage in a voluntary transaction, that's great, that's liberty. Uh, when I'm forced to do something, that's coercion, that's bad, and, the, and coercion is almost always done by the state. So there's the uh, dichotomy is between liberty and coercion. Uh, so that's a, it's a very it's a simple model. I think anyone can, can follow that. Um, I want to just to say how it applies, talk about something which by the standard of today's news cycle is ancient history, but it actually took place a year ago, sorry, a week ago Thursday. And that was President Trump's speech in Warsaw. And what... So what was the gist? Anyone want to tell me in a sentence or two what the gist of President's, President Trump's speech in Warsaw is? I know it's a long way back to remember, but is any, can I? Come on. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so the survival of Western civilization. So which one of those axes does that sound like? Does that sound like the progressive, the conservative, or the libertarian? Yeah, it sounds like the conservative. In fact, he was, he was sort of playing all the notes in the uh, conservative songbook when he gave that speech. Um, he was saying that you know Western civilization is under threat. Western civilization is great. We need to defend it. You know, just everything in the conservative songbook uh, was in that speech. And in fact, I think that speech got a more favorable response from mainstream conservatives than anything else that Trump has said, uh, or any, any, any other speeches that President Trump has made. Um, but did progressives like it? Does anyone have the gist of the progressive response to that speech? So everyone's being shy. You better not be. You better not be too shy, by the way, because I believe that speakers should be interrupted. Uh, speakers who are allowed to drone on get very boring. Me especially. So any interruption, you can ask me an off-topic question. You know, anything you want. Um, one of the things that progressives said about Trump's speech was that it was a dog whistle for white nationalism. So. They're clearly interpreting it, trying to interpret it into the oppressor-oppressed axis, right? These white, white nationalists are going to be the oppressors, and this is actually a signal to oppressors that they can go on and oppress people. Um, but I, what I liked is the phrase dog whistle, because the phrase dog whistle really, re really relates to the theme of this book, because what's a dog whistle? A dog whistle is something that a dog can hear, but people cannot. So it sort of creates a difference between, people who, between those who can hear it and those who cannot hear it. 
And that's my claim about what political communication is about along these three axes. Everyone is dog whistling. They're making statements that people on their side can hear and say, oh yeah, boy, this person really gets it. And people who are not in that tribe either don't get it or actually feel threatened by it. So they're at best missing the point and at worst feeling threatened by the same communication. So we're all doing dog whistling. In fact, the really sad thing, and when I, what made me decide to write this book was the realization that if you think of what political communication might be, it might consist of me trying to uh, open the minds of people on my own side. Like I say to people on my own side, you know, we've always had this belief, but maybe we should be a little careful. Maybe we ought to think of some other, other possibilities. Or that's so you could be opening your own minds of your own side. Second, you could think of it as trying to open the minds of people on the other side, where you really try to engage them, treat them respectfully, and try to open their minds. And the third is you could be trying to close the minds of the people on your own side. Now, on the face of it, that sounds pretty stupid, like a real waste. Why would you, you know, trying to close the minds of people on your own side is a waste. But I submit that if you look at the typical newspaper column or the typical blog post, the chances are its main purpose is to close the minds of people on, the own, on their own side. And that's kind of what led me to write this book and start thinking about political language being used for the purpose of closing people's minds. And the way to do that is to take a complex issue and break it down into these narrow axes and then focus on the one axis uh, so that your own side sees things in terms of the, that axis. And it, it turns out that just about any issue can be broken down it can be viewed through the framework of each of these three axes. So any issue that comes up, you, people can try to close the minds of their own side about that issue. So take the issue between um, involving African Americans being shot by police. That gives rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. So if imagine you're trying you're a progressive trying to close the minds of your own people on your own side about this. Well, you'd emphasize what? You'd emphasize racism among police and in society in general. And you say that's the way to frame this issue of African Americans being shot by police. If you're a conservative and you want to close the minds of people on your own side, you say, well, uh, these people have to learn to respect police. We depend on police to protect our civilization. They have to be given the most respect possible, the most deference. People have to be very cautious with them. And if you're going to protest police activity, you can't have riots. Uh, you can't have looting. So the, the Black Lives Matter movement is actually responsible for barbarism. They're, they're, they're on the wrong side. And if you're a libertarian and you want to close the the minds of people on your side about this issue. You, you emphasize, first of all, some of the laws that are used to stop people, that you know, people are just 
uh, often engaged in activity that isn't inherently bad, but is uh, nonetheless against the law. And also you'd emphasize the over-militarization of police. Why, do poli why are police so heavily armed and so prone to shoot? Um, so, so, you know, that's one example of an issue that uh, you, you can frame with each of the, you know, if you want, with, with, with any of these, um, each of the three axes. Let's, um, let me see if I'll, let me try, an, try another issue. Um, yeah, sure, go ahead. Okay, the question was, what would a libertarian say about Trump's speech in Warsaw? I actually have not read libertarian commentary, but libertarians in general would probably uh, be very concerned about a, um, an aggressive foreign policy. And to the extent that Mr. Trump's speech suggested that he wanted to sort of aggress be aggressive in foreign policy, then they would say that, well, that's, you know, the state is just as wrong when it tries to intervene overseas as it is wrong when it tries to intervene in domestic affairs. So, um, uh, so they would probably fear that that was a sort of a, a summons to the government engaging in more coercion, in this case, coercion uh, in foreign policy. Um, Okay, so let me, let me throw out uh, a random historical example rather than a current event, which is uh, the Nazi Holocaust. So how could we have three different ways of viewing the Nazi Holocaust? Well, what would a progressive say? A progressive would say this was an oppressor oppressed, that uh, you in the 19th century and early 20th century, Jews were oppressed in Europe, and this is what happens when you... Uh, have an oppressed class of people, and you uh, and the oppressors just you know get completely out of hand. A conservative would say this is what happens when the uh, institutions of civilization break down. So Germany was the most arguably the most civilized country in the world uh, in the late 1800s. Certainly one of the had a leading civilization, but after the First World War. Uh, their civilization, civilized institutions broke down, and that is what le leads to Nazis and the Holocaust. And libertarians would say, well, what we had was totalitarian government, and you had Stalin and Hitler with totalitarian ideologies, and that's sort of the ultimate uh, outcome of, of coercion, that when, when government really gets unlimited power, totalitarian power, uh, you get people murdered, uh, and that's the result. Yeah, do, we, do you have a... Yeah, how are you defining How am I defining civilization? Well, the con let me put my conservative hat on, because this is for conservative purposes. Um, Civilization as the set of institutions and social norms that restrain people's natural barbaric instincts and make them behave uh, 
in ways that allow them to cooperate and you know avoid war, avoid bloodshed, and so on. So allow people to behave decently toward one another. Is that a this, So the question is, so from a conservative viewpoint, you need uh, external per forces to bring the good out of people? Yes, I, th I think that is a fair statement. I, th I think from a conservative point of view, human nature is naturally bad, we're fallen, and to, uh, to enable people to behave well, you do need all these external forces. You need strong families, you need religion, you need... Uh, effective government that people respect and defer to, so on. Yeah, I think that, that would be a fair, uh, fair picture from a conservative point of view. Um, so that's, you know, progressives and libertarians clearly have different views of human nature. The libertarian view is probably the most optimistic. Just let people do whatever they want voluntarily and uh, it'll all come out well. The progressive view is probably is that, uh, well, some people uh, suffer from sort of adverse circumstances and they need to be uh, uh, helped, but otherwise everyone is basically good, and they can um, and they can ultimately be happy and successful if they're not oppressed and held back, and if instead they're helped. So there are there are I think those different views of human nature. Having said that. I, I want to be careful to say I'm not trying to define progressivism, to define conservatism, or to define libertarianism, or to reduce them to these three axes. I really want to emphasize that these are communication axes. It's, you know, privately, any given libertarian, conservative, progressive might have very nuanced and complex uh, ways of arriving at their points of view. But it's publicly that they, will use, they are prone to use these languages. So you'll see these languages probably most often among uh, pundits and bloggers, and maybe less often uh, when people are thinking privately. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, I want to uh, question your uh, the nuance of your description of the progressive view. It seems to me that the progressives would say that, uh, that uh, if we're the conservatives want external forces that are traditional and backward looking, progressives also believe mankind can be improved. That's why they're called progressives. But they're basically their forces as being forward looking. Yeah, so the he's saying that the uh, progressives don't, you know, they're not like libertarians. They don't say just turn people loose. They say that people can be improved, but we need sort of progressive forces to improve them, you know, like public schooling or, or, or what have you. Yeah, I think that, that that's a fair statement. But I think there's still, I think it's, it is a more optimistic view of human nature than the conservative view. It's not like, you know, people are just, you know, about to be cut loose and turned into barbarism if you don't stop them. I don't, I don't think the progressives are that pessimistic. Um, yeah, sure. Um, okay, so she's, 
The question is, are there combinations of these axes? I, don't, I actually don't want to think in those terms. I just think of them as sort of perpendicular to each other and sort of not talking to one another. Um, so that when, uh, when somebody, when a progressive, let's say, frames the Black Lives Matter issue as sort of you know, society's racism, you know, people are perpendicular to that. Other people, conservatives and libertarians, can't, don't even hear that. They don't understand that point of view, or it just it doesn't it doesn't resonate with them. Uh, and that, <laughs> so the um, again, uh, that brings up that this is a it's most important as a model of political communication. That is, it's not necessarily how people think. It's, I'm not, it's not a psychological model of how people think or what makes somebody progressive or what makes somebody conservative. It's just a model of how they communicate. So the theory of why they communicate this way is, is a, a belief that people are tribal. That, and unfortunately today, people's tribal identity with their political beliefs is very strong. And when you have, and, and when you think about what a tribe will do, you know, why are there different languages in the world? There may be other theories, but one theory is that, that a tribe really doesn't want the other tribe to understand its language, that tribes are inherently hostile to other tribes, and so they develop their own signals. And an analogy might be, you know, with a, with a football game, an American football game, you know, the quarterback is calling an audible, they want their own team to understand it, but they don't want the other team to understand it. And in some sense, our political language has evolved that way with it, because there's this tribal conflict among these, among these groups. And so um, that's why uh, <laughs> that this, you know, this becomes important for communication. It also, I think, reflects some other psychological uh, characteristics that we have. Um, we seem to naturally want to uh, look for reinforcement for our beliefs. So uh, there have been uh, studies done where, where people who came in with different views on an issue were given an identical set of facts, and each side came out of reading that set of facts saying that it strengthened their point of view. So we have this natural desire to filter out information that uh, we might have to uh, think about because it questions our point of view and to uh, automatically accept uh, ideas that support our point of view. And as an economist, I think I see that a lot. Um, I see a lot of economics studies being cited by people when they support their view, point of view, but criticized when they, uh, when they don't support that point of view. So if I, if I see something, a, a study that says, oh, that uh, minimum wage, a higher minimum wage doesn't reduce employment, and I'm, incl I'm inclined not to, uh, not to like that, that point of view, I will search carefully for all the methodological flaws in that study. But if the study, same study comes out the other way, I'll say, mm, okay, I assume that's right. 
Uh, and people react that way. They become very critical, and they, and they, they react as, as if they're under threat when they see facts or analysis that contradicts their point of view, uh, whereas they, they, they're not threatened at all when something supports their point of view. So that's, you know, that's again, part of this tribal psychology. Another thing is that uh, you'll find in a tribal setting that if you uh, endorse the rituals and beliefs of your tribe, your status within the tribe goes up. That's part of how tribes hold together. If the tribe didn't punish people who are, uh, who, who are nonconformists and didn't reward conformists, the tribe wouldn't, wouldn't coalesce. So in order for the tribe to coalesce, it has to raise the status of people who uh, conform to its norms and its values. So you, if you're a uh, liberal pundit or progressive pundit and you express things along the oppressor-oppressed axis, you're going to get a lot of positive reinforcement. And if you're a conservative, same with conservatives and libertarians. Again, I'll go back to the reaction to... President Trump's Warsaw speech. He got a lot of positive reinforcement from conservatives for put using that language uh, and being so focused on that civilization versus barbarism language. And that's, um, so that's another part of this sort of psychology that makes for this kind of political communication. And a final point, which is perhaps the most disturbing of all, is that we have a natural belief that we understand other people's motives better than they understand their own. Um, read just about any Paul Krugman column, and you will find him claiming that he understands the true motives of conservatives better than they understand it themselves. There's actually been in the not widely in the news, but a uh, recent uh, book by a historian that claimed to understand the motives of a Nobel laureate named James Buchanan uh, claims that uh, his, he was motivated entirely by the tradition of uh, segregationism. And there appears to be to the, at least to those of us who know something about Buchanan's work, there appears to be no truth to this at all. But people often uh, have this view that we understand someone else's motives better than they understand themselves. And what that leads to then is people in each of these tribes thinking that the other tribes ultimately are evil. So rather than say that a progressive... Uh, you know, um, supports or opposes the uh, travel ban that President Trump is trying to support because, you know, for legitimate reasons, you say, they just, they just want to see our, our country destroyed. They're against America. Um, so you actually start to characterize people from other tribes as being on the opposite end of the axis that your tribe cares about. So if you're a progressive, you say, well, really, James Buchanan was on the side of the oppressed. He was a segregationist. Uh, if, 
Um, if you're a conservative, you say they're really on the side of the barbarians. They just want, the, they just want to let the Muslims overrun our country and have Sharia. Uh, if you're a libertarian, you say all they want is, is power. They just want, you know, um, I think uh, there, there's a book that I quote in the book where the, the libertarian says, look, the conservatives just want a, um, a police state and the and the progressive just want a nanny state or something, you know, something to that effect. That that, that so you get to the point where you're you really you, you can't even view the other people as reasonable. You just think that they're on the evil end of your axis. So that's so that's a, kind of a dark view of the tribal politics, uh, but it's really it's really there. And um, yeah, I, I've been joking that when I um, when I started writing this book, I was upset that there was so much anger uh, between the various factions. And now that the book's been out, the f first edition of the book was been out a few years, uh, that anger isn't there anymore. It's replaced by outrage. So uh, I haven't really, uh, haven't really penetrated, uh, but it's, um, it, it's certainly disturbing. <coughs> Uh, let me close by m mentioning that I think like most people, I was thrown off by the Donald Trump phenomenon, and I don't think, uh, apart, the Warsaw speech aside, I don't think he fits really well with any of these three axes. I think he realigned politics and I like to call it sort of the Bobo versus anti-Bobo thing. And so you, your interns probably were were not uh, sentient when uh, when the idea of a Bobo came out. But David Brooks, uh, this is when he in his younger days wrote a book called Bobos in Paradise, and Bobo stands for bourgeois bohemian. And what he was trying to describe was sort of the contradiction between people who claimed to have kind of hippie values but were very materially successful. So this bourgeois aspect and the bohemian aspect. And uh, what he perfectly described was the, uh, the attitude of, of sort of affluent, well-educated people and their kind of their cultural, how their culture had uh, had evolved, uh, and their you know he he was mocking sort of the the tastes you know the the you know these pe people who you know would hate things like you know power boats or motorcycles, but would you know think it's perfectly respectable to have a ten thousand dollar shower if, of the right sort, and. Um, uh, you, know, you may have seen recently he kind of revived the, this Bobo story with the story of somebody who understood the strange meats in a sandwich and somebody who didn't. Uh, that got a lot of play. But that was, that, that's still the, the, the Bobo story. Anyway, I think Trump has mobilized the anti-Bobos, people who are just tired of this, the cultural snobbery of the bourgeois bohemians and... Uh, so there's kind of a bobo, anti-bobo uh, fight in that. And I, I don't see that really as aligning with the, the three axes model at all. Uh, but we'll see if the 
if the three axes model reemerges, certainly uh, I, I think each of the three tribes is still willing to fight for its uh, along its axis. But the uh, for the moment, the, the, there's a lot of this bobo anti bobo alignment going on. All right, I, I need more interruptions. Yes. Okay, so how do I reconcile my view of conservatism, that the civilization versus barbarism, with a, the conservatives' uh, preference for deregulation? The, uh, I think conservatives would like to see people regulated by uh, more traditional institutions and norms, not as much government. So. Uh, families, uh, religious institutions, traditional values. And in fact, if government is regulating too much, the conservative will say, you're not giving people the space to learn, to learn how to regulate themselves, and, to, and you're also crowding out these other institutions. So I, th I think that would be, again, but again, I'm not, trying to say that this is a language that explains their point of view or how people would think about their point of view if they were very careful about it. The, the challenge, you know, anyone, conservative, progressive, or libertarian, can come up with very nuanced, um, complex ways of thinking about their point of view. Uh, and just asking the question, how would I reconcile this point of view with, the, with this axis, is a question that people don't ask often enough. Um, what, they, what they are doing, according to this model, is they're just avoiding those kinds of questions and just jumping to uh, respond to an issue being framed along those axes. So they... Um, you know, maybe somebody should think about you know, how do I, you know, how do I reconcile my views on regulation with my views on civilization versus barbarism. But instead, they're going to just react more reflexively to somebody speaking the language of civilization versus barbarism. Yes. So the question is, was, would a libertarian say that people are guided by self-interest or they're naturally good-natured? Yes. Right? Um, so, um, yeah, the, that the, when there's enough sort of, when, when there's voluntary interaction, uh, you can't, you're not forcing me to do something when I act in my self-interest, uh, you know, sort of the, it's as if you're being good-natured to me. Yes? Okay, so the question is, how would we go about identifying ulterior motives given that 
Uh, I believe that we tend to overestimate our ability to find ulterior motives. That's a good question. I, I, the first thing I would say is be very hesitant to jumping to the conclusion that you understand you have someone else's motives. The second thing would be to be especially careful to avoid attributing the motives that fit with your axis. So if you're naturally a libertarian, really avoid jumping to the conclusion that other people just want to exert power over you because that, that's what they want. They want power. Try to figure out, uh, there's this phrase, assume positive motivation. Try to assume, first of all, that there's some positive motivation for why they want that policy. Uh, and be very hesitant about uh, assuming the opposite. And again, for, for the other uh, sides as well. Yes? Okay, so the question is sort of what kind of you know, advice, practical implications of this. Um, I've got to say I'm uh, just probably best just to think of it as an interesting theory, right? Um, the, what I would most like people to do is sort of recognize that these axes exist and sort of back away from being, you know, just so caught up in your own point of view that you're, uh, that you view the other other people as evil. So, so you slow down and say, okay, maybe from a different framework, this this issue would look differently. Um, you know, that's just a, a more personal point of view. I suppose somebody could claim that they could, uh, you know, maybe give political speeches that would be different. Uh, I think you have to be careful about that. I think, you know, for example, you know, conservatives on college campuses might say, hey, we're oppressed. You know, let, let's start talking about the oppressor-oppressed axis with us being oppressed. And I, I just don't think progressives are going to hear it that way, and I don't think anyone will do it. So I think, uh, I think it... I'm going to be pretty modest. I'll say there, there are really two things that you can do with this. One is you can sort of play the game of watching pundits and noticing, or even politicians, and noticing when they're communicating very strongly on one axis and say, uh-huh, see, they're doing that. Um, and the, but the other thing is to sort of control your own tribalism, partisanship, and just say, okay, I'll, I'll try to be a little less tribal. I understand that I, I'm autom I automatically resonate to this particular uh, way of framing things, but I'll be very cautious when someone frames things that way, and I'll be very open to other, people, uh, other people's framings. Yeah. Um, another like reconciliation question. How do you reconcile um, the relatively new phenomenon of conservatives kind of framing themselves as being a threat, such as like uh, protests at Berkeley against First Amendment, against conservative speakers, and um, this kind of new phenomenon of conservatives framing like we're being oppressed by the Yeah. So how do I, how do I uh, analyze sort of the conservatives who are claiming to be oppressed on campus? I'll say that they've uh, they've they they're making the mistake of adopting the language 
of progressives, and I think it's kind of a hopeless, hopeless case. I, I just think it's just, um, that would be an example. If you read the three languages, you, you might say, that, that's really not going to, it's just not going to do it. Yeah, it's, it's going to sound like it, but um, the instinct, I think, behind the progressive view is that there are certain classes of people who are inherently oppressed, and conservatives as a class are not inherently oppressed. To be inherently oppressed, you have to be, you know, you have to be female or a minority or you know L LGBT. I can't get those letters out there, um, and so on. So that um, so I think I, I think that's I think that's just uh, just a, an unwise thing. I think if they're gonna, I think you just they just have to make uh, to make the case and sort of uh, you know when I was growing up the people who called themselves progressives were all for free speech. And I think that would be kind of what the, the lever that I would pull on. It would be that, look, you, know, you were traditionally for free speech. You had a lot of good arguments for free speech. Um, let's revive those arguments and let's go back to your roots of you know, 40, 50 years ago and not get into this new anti-free speech thing. Oh, well, no, the, okay, so the question is, you know, do conservatives who uh, think they're oppressed, is that a genuine belief? But I, I'd say yes, but it's always the belief of conservatives. It's, it's, it's always part of this axis that, you know, the barbarians are always at the gate, and we have to, we have to hold them back. Uh, I think that's just, that's just, that's just that, you, there's never been a time when conservatives said, ah, oh, relax, bar no, barbar no barbarism here. You know, no, you just, that, that's just not where it is. Yeah. I wonder if maybe the progressive access is not better defined by this question about their favoring man new man-made institutions uh, rather than with the question of oppressor and oppressed. The language of oppressor and oppressed is used by, on all the axes, by everyone. Uh, the, the libertarians say we're oppressed by the state, the conservatives say we're oppressed by the progressives say we're oppressed by traditional institutions, as long ago as Edmund Burke, who said the French Revolution was oppressive. So it's not a new development. Okay, so this is a good point that you know, everyone will use these langu languages. Um, you know, no progressive. You know, the progressives not going to say they're against liberty or against civilization. Uh, conservatives not going to say they're for oppression or uh, or they're for coercion. So th these things, you know, I, everyone would agree on what's good and bad along these axes. I think that what my theory is saying is that when it comes to framing on an issue by issue basis, a progressive will hear the word when you frame the issue in terms of oppressed classes of people. Again, you have to be very careful. They're, they're classes of people who are oppressed. They're not just, it's not the act of oppression. It's the inherent oppressed nature of being 
a woman or a minority or uh, non-straight sexually. That's inherent, an inherently oppressed situation, according to the progressive. And that, that's, that's unique. That, that's not, conservatives aren't going to tell you that. Libertarians aren't going to tell you that. Um, so the, um, so when, when they frame these issues, or when they hear those issues framed in, in that way, they respond, and others don't. Even though, yes, oppression is bad to everyone, coercion is bad to everyone, so on. Um, barbarism is bad to everyone. Uh, seeing the world, or having the world described along those axes, I do think you will see that. Uh, and again, I, I invite you to look at uh, pundits who you you know can see are purely, you know, typically progressive, typically conservative, typically libertarian, and you, I I think you'll see them framing those issues along these lines. Yeah. Okay, so that's a great, great question about the effect of media. Uh, you know, as we switch from, you know, you, you're too young to even know what it was like with the three channels. Uh, you, know, you know, Walter Cronkite said, that's the way it is, and that's the way it was, and that was the end of it. Um, I, I think the main effect of new media has been to speed up the cycle, and I think that goes against thinking. So people, you see something on Facebook and you feel, and if it comes from the other tribe, you feel threatened and you just have to react. Or you see something that's, that resonates with you and you say, that's great, I've got to share it. And uh, I, th I, think it's, I think it's accentuated the tribalism for that reason. People, um, and I also think for another reason, it's, it makes it very easy to mobilize people along tribal lines, um, and very yeah, and very hard to kind of escape your tribal point of view and try to sit back. Y yes, other points of view are available, and some people some people look at them, but I think people are very easily mobilized. Uh, you know, and so sort of, you know, they come out and we'll have a demonstration. You know, right away, and you have the. The left versus the right, you know, people being you know pulled out to demonstrate. It's a uh, uh, people are reacting very quickly, and the um, uh, and flaws among the people who supposedly are in charge and elites are being exposed much more easily than they were, and so there's uh, you know that mu that much more hostility. Uh, Coming from from that point of view, there's, you know, um, yeah, that's that's a gigantic question, by the way. I mean, I, I, you could do, and people have done, and, you know, entire books on that topic, and it's a, it's it's a, I, I, I could go on for half an hour, and I probably have, probably as I, as I answer other questions, things are going to pop into my head about that one. Yeah.
Okay, question. How do the three factions look at $20 trillion worth of national debt? Well, first thing I'll say is that $20 trillion is nothing because the, uh, there's like well over $100 trillion of unfunded obligations. So, uh, And I personally um, think that that's pretty frightening. Uh, and, and what's it's going to mean is that politics, uh, which had been, you know, where part of the salve in the political system was being able to give out goodies to people. So, all right, you're unhappy, all right, we'll just give you some money, you know. Uh, that salve will go away because the need is going to be to take money away from people. Uh, you know, 20 years from now, you're going to have to be saying, okay, you retiree can't get your money or you bondholder can't get your money. You can't, we can't pay both of you. That's, to me, what the, what the debt issue leads to. Um, and that's going to be very, you know, that's just going to raise the conflict level in politics. You don't have the salve of being able to give people money. Um, so that's uh, a dark view on that. Now to how would that issue throw in, go into a three-axis framework, not automatically. Um, you know, if you're a progressive, you probably would just, you know, oh, this isn't fair. I would say you want to ignore it, but that's not, that's really not fair. Um, a, um, from a conservative point of view, you know, anything, you know, saving is good, indebtedness is bad, saving is civilized, and indebtedness is not, so uh, you would think that conservatives would be just very hard line against debt, but uh, I think in practice, you know, it, again, it, 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 spending money is so valuable to a politician and giving people stuff that it's hard to, I think even for a conservative to, uh, to really take the, the instinctive conservative anti-debt line. Uh, and really run with it. Um, libertarian would just say, you know, shrink the government regardless, right? You know, so it's not the level of debt, it's the level of spending. Um, I'm sure that would be the, the libertarian instinct. Um, and I guess if I throw the progressive, if the view is that, you know, human beings can be improved if we just do the right things, then uh, just say, well, we. The key is the is the is government doing things to improve people, and if it's doing things to improve people's lives, let's not you know, the debt is not the issue. It's, 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 I like questions. I mean, you know, you should you can you know think of any issue you want, throw it out like that, and see if we can uh, if we can formulate it that way. Yeah. Okay. okay, so the question is about uh, bipartisanship. First of all, you know, back when I was an intern, uh, bipartisanship was a lot easier. And I think it's gotten harder. I think a part goes back to the question about media. Uh, if you, uh, you know, suppose a bunch of Republicans and Democrats were to get together this week 
and agree on a health care proposal. What do you think would happen to the Republicans and Democrats who did that? I mean, they, the media would know it, their constituents would know it, and they'd be primaried out of existence. Okay, that, it, it, just things were not that way when I was growing up. Well, the, 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 the media have, uh, in the terms of this guy, Martin Gurry, G-U-R-R-I, he wrote a book called The Revolt of the Public, which is online but isn't in print. Um, the media have empowered the public. Uh, just a few years ago, politician, there, there was a book by political scientists called The Party Decides. The claim was that when it comes down to it, you know, you can have all this sort of, you know, stuff going on in a political nomination contest and it's the party leaders who decide. So, so did the party leaders to decide that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee? No, he had no endorsements at all. I mean, in my... When I was growing up, that was just a total impossibility. It was probably a total impossibility 10 years ago that somebody with zero high-level endorsements could win a party nomination. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it's a different media environment, and that's now possible. And I, but I think that same media environment, I think, makes bipartisanship, at least in public, very difficult. And, and also, much more is in public. So the smoke-filled rooms are gone, the secret deals are, are gone, and um, so my outlook for bipartisanship is not, obviously not very optimistic. Yeah? You said earlier how um, you think you can expose young people's minds by like... Every, anyone's mind. Anyone's <laughs> mind by breaking complex issues down into simple terms that kind of favor your side. Yeah. So am I not trying to oversimplify things? I'm, I'm trying to offer a theory of how people communicate. I'm not saying that people should communicate this way. And in fact, I'm saying people should not communicate this way. So I'm, I'm sort of, uh, so are these oversimplified? Yes. And that's why they're bad. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, your point is that as parties became more consistent ideologically, then it, you, you lose bipartisanship, and I think that's uh, that, that's probably a fair observation. <laughs>